Welcome to the Diane Podcast. Diane, or Diversity and Inclusion in Asian Network, is the leading network of companies and professionals committed to advancing diversity and inclusion in their organizations in Asia. Leveraging a decade of expertise and thought leadership, we hope this podcast inspires, educates, and motivates passionate individuals like yourself. My name is Tina Arcilia, Senior Manager at Community Business, and I manage the Diane Network. In this fourth episode, we have Suzanne Price, founder of Price Global, a pioneer change agent for diversity and inclusion and developing people, with a vision for a world where people can bring their whole self to work and thrive. Thank you for joining, Suzanne. Thank you. Let's start with a quick introduction. Tell us about your background and your extensive experience working in the region. Okay, so a little about my background. I'm from the UK. I live in Tokyo these days. And I've also lived and worked in Australia, in New York in the United States. And I've done voluntary work in India and the Philippines. And professionally, I started in mental health, and then later I switched into applied psychology for organizations um, with a passion and interest for inclusion and diversity. And these days, I have my own company called Price Global, who deliver consulting services and various workshops and also executive coaching with a big emphasis around inclusion and diversity, and also some work around mental wellness in the workplace. Mm. We at Community Business and Diane have worked with you for about a decade now. When back in 2005, I was probably one of the very first heads of inclusion and diversity uh, for an organization in Asia Pacific. At that time, I was working with UBS. And UBS were one of the two platinum sponsors for the very first community business conference on inclusion and diversity. And I think that might have been one of the first conferences Mm. in the region. So then I was involved from um, an internal standpoint and, yes, continued to engage with community business as an internal practitioner. And then later working as an external practitioner, then involved with community business, uh, whether it's being interviewed for some of the research and reports that community business do, um, also some of the uh, events that have happened along the way. Mm. Wow, that's a great summary of the extensive work we've done with you for more than a decade. I actually remember back in 2012 that you ran a workshop at the regional DNI conference that we run in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to get a seat at that session, but I was later on able to attend another workshop that you ran with us. Those conversations gave me some incredible insights on workplace interactions, but also insights on myself. Yes, thank you. Yes, I had a great opportunity to do a workshop at the conference in 2012, as you mentioned. That was on unconscious bias in general and for organizations, HR managers to think about that. And then one of the workshops that uh, you joined, I remember, was targeting minorities. And it was looking at how do you navigate unconscious bias about yourself? Mm. And how do you have the resilience to bounce back? Or what are some of the strategies to deal with that? Yes, that's right. So in your experience working in this field over the last decade, what do you think are the key challenges that locals here in Asia 
face with regard to unconscious bias and resilience? Um, yes, if I can just take a, a little step back as well. When we're doing unconscious bias workshops with organizations, we maybe will be looking at the organizational level. We do quite a lot of work with uh, managers, people making decisions about people. And the kind of workshop that you attended in Hong Kong, that was addressing the individual. So it was for individuals to get some awareness of how people might perceive them and for them to think about what might be some of the biases that people may have about them. Um, also, what might be some of, the, uh, some of their characteristics or traits that cause them to have a slightly slower or held back career or something that kind of pushes them forward. Because what we see in organizations is some people have perhaps some, some privilege or they somehow match the success profile of the organization well and their career tends to be easier and faster. And for other people, there may be some things that they recognize can hold them back. So when we do these sessions for individuals, it's helping them figure out what are some strategies, how do they bounce back, how do they um, manage some of the perceptions that other people have of them, and also looking at, you know, where do they need to, to style switch? So just like when we go to another culture, we maybe do you know, different behavior in one country versus another. Also, when we're adapting to the culture of an organization, of course, we should bring our whole self to work. We should be as authentic as we can. That's when we do our best work. And sometimes we make a conscious decision to manage the way people are perceiving us and adapt a little bit our behavior. To, to that end. So I think that's something that's important, not just for Asians, but, but for everybody to look at. Um, when we do these workshops in Asia, then quite often we're looking at uh, some of the biases related to gender, but also we see some that are related to, for example, Asians working in foreign multinational organizations who perhaps need to demonstrate HQ-style behavior sometimes to be perceived as perhaps showing leadership um, style. And at the same time, of course, they need to do something that's culturally appropriate for the part of the world that they're in. So we may be looking at, you know, how do they consciously choose which style to use according to who's in front of them and managing a little bit how they would like people to perceive them. Mm, so knowing when and how to flex. But switching gears a little bit, you spoke earlier about your experience as a clinical mental health professional and related to your focus on resilience is the issue of mental health, which is seemingly getting more attention from companies these days, and rightly so. Talk to us about the link between diversity and inclusion and mental health. What has been driving this increased awareness of mental health? Has it been easy or hard to get companies to take action? Yeah, this is an interesting question. And, and yes, I mean, I, I feel like finally I'm going back to my roots, and for a number of years, I, I thought that organizations should pay more attention to mental wellness in the workplace, and as you say, finally, it seems to be getting more attention. Um, I think part of the reason that it's getting more attention is probably a little bit similar to what happened with when inclusion and diversity first got attention. It's a bit reactionary. And so there are probably some things that uh, organizations are seeing happening in the workplace. I mean, there's always been, of course, people that may become mentally unwell at some point. Uh, but beyond that, I think organizations are beginning to wonder whether there's anything about the work environment, about managers' style that could 
cause some stress for individuals. I think also, you know, when we think about inclusion and diversity, there is a direct link because we already know that when people are included, then they will be more engaged, more motivated, um, more productive, etc. And so this is somebody that's also mentally well. If people are continuously fighting off um, stereotypes, um, bias, you know, they have some stereotype threat, for example, or if they are overly style switching and they're not able to be authentically themselves and continuously being um, somebody that they're not, right, to look like a, a success profile in the organization, that kind of thing can, can cause stress. Um, also, when organizations are looking at flexible ways of working, uh, which of course empower people to work in different ways, but it also means that we're often working extended hours, we're available 24-7 over technology, and organizations recognize that there's a possibility that that's creating an unhealthy environment for some people. So I think organizations are starting to, to make this connection and therefore, therefore are somewhat reactionary. Of course, outside of the organization, there could be other things in society that are causing people to become mentally unwell. Um, and of course, you know, circumstances in people's lives, etc. And I think that's a little bit different angle. And this is more about HR recognizing that they need to be better equipped to have emotionally intelligent conversations with people who are struggling emotionally, psychologically, um, if they are perhaps mentally unwell. And also for managers, um, just like with inclusion and diversity or simply people management, they need to know their people well. And again, if people are not doing well in terms of mental wellness, again, managers need to know what to look out for and to be able to engage in a conversation around that in order to be supportive. So we know that HR and people managers are key here. How can we then as managers and leaders prepare to have those, as you say, emotionally intelligent conversations? Are there some best practices, some tips you can share with us? I think when it comes to having emotionally intelligent conversations, that really the the best practices are probably not a lot different from using intelligence in managing people in general. And whether it's about mental health, um, whether it's a manager talking with somebody who's diversely different from them, then it's still using the same skills of being able to perhaps put yourself in somebody else's shoes, um, to be recognizing your own reactions, um, to be curious and inquisitive about what's going on for them. Um, and then, of course, you know, looking at what can be done together by the individual, by the manager, um, or as a team. Um, and I think that for the managers, really, the hesitation around these conversations can be parallel to some of the hesitation that they have when they're talking with someone who's different from them, because it really comes down to the same things, that they feel like they're on unfamiliar territory. They don't understand the other person's experience. They maybe feel a little bit um, incompetent. They may be afraid of having that conversation. And so I think if you know, some of the same emotional triggers come up for them that make them weary of, of having such a conversation and also worried about saying something that might get them into trouble, uh, that it's perhaps taboo or 
a little bit risky for them to be talking about mental health. And likewise, sometimes talking across difference, talking with someone who's very different from them. Again, they worry about uh, blurting out something that's taboo or invading someone's privacy, etc. So I, I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of opportunities for managers to practice their emotional intelligence and Yes, whether it's through talking about mental health or other topics, equipping them to understand themselves better, put themselves in the shoes of someone else, and figuring out how to have a conversation across that, that's what's important. I agree, Suzanne. A lot of times it's fear of coming across as incompetent, fear of doing or saying the wrong thing or offending someone that prevents us from acting. Now, as we look ahead, where do you see the opportunities for the future? What do companies, managers, leaders need to be preparing for? What more needs to be done? Okay, so when we look at the future, then I think we still need to continue looking systemically. We need to consider from an organizational point of view, from the point of view of managers, making decisions about people and individuals. I think that part doesn't really change and that's our, our ongoing work. I think the way that we do this and gradually you know the, the gaps that we need to work on will evolve because as we have certain initiatives in place, then it becomes apparent what's the other initiative we need to, to add to that. So I remember, you know, back in sort of 2004, 2005, then I was often invited by organizations to do workshops for uh, developing women leaders. And in those days, I pointed out, well, it's not just the women that need something. Surely the organization and the people making decisions about them need something. And at that time, organizations will say, yes, we hear that. But anyway, we have budget for the women. And so this is kind of like the identified target group. And as we all know, a lot of initiatives were put in place to develop the women. However, nothing happened with the managers making decisions about them. So managers were not necessarily um, leveraging any of the new skills and ideas that the women got from their workshop. Um, Organizations were not necessarily changing their practices. And so, of course, organizations started realizing, well, of course, we need something to empower managers to be more inclusive, to started to understand more about unconscious biases. Are there things in the organization that cause those biases, et cetera? And so I think, you know, where the focus goes keeps evolving. Um, what I hear unanimously, not just in Asia, but in other parts of the world, is really a lot more needs helping managers, especially that middle layer of managers, to get on board and to skill them up. So I think that as organizations start having a foundation around unconscious bias, and for me it's really important we're not just recognizing what that is, but we're having the application piece to think about how does it show up around here, what do we do about it, then the next level would be looking at inclusive behaviors of managers, of everybody in general, of course, but particularly focusing on how do we skill managers up. Um, so one of the things that we're working on is, for example, um, an assessment tool to be able to uh, look at what are inclusive behaviors that managers could be doing um, to assess where they're at and also help them in terms of what they can add to their repertoire to get better at that. 
So I think that could be um, one area that organizations are looking quite a bit. I, I think the other thing that's important is looking at how do we provide the training tools and um, experiences for people in a virtual way. So obviously organizations are using technology a lot more and they have people working in various um, isolated locations. And so it's not always practical to bring everybody together for a live workshop. And so that's also something we've been developing a lot more uh, to have, for example, we use actors to do inclusion theatre. We may also do a version of that that can be done through webinar, can be done live through technology. Also some recorded pieces that we can be using with our clients in different ways. Um, so I think figuring out ways to make the, the training experiences accessible uh, in virtual ways is important. And also thinking about how to drip feed some of that to, to people in organizations. So it could be that they have, say, a two-hour training, but then also perhaps some mini um, video casts or podcasts on particular topics, or having some of those ready recorded so that when a manager has a particular thing to deal with, say, somebody with elder care challenges, or perhaps they're sponsoring somebody who's very different from them, that they can perhaps plug into a 20-minute podcast on that topic at a time when it's pertinent to them. So I think having that kind of flexibility with offerings is quite important and that's what we're putting quite a lot of our effort into developing and finding that our, our clients are quite interested in that. Um, having said that, uh, I do have some concern about these days. There are a lot of uh, e-learnings out in the public domain on topics like unconscious bias. And the challenge with e-learning is that it's, up until now, mostly been really good for knowledge transfer. And that's why it works really well for compliance training. When we look at using it for something related to inclusion and diversity, certainly we can do knowledge transfer about unconscious bias and help people understand what that is. But that doesn't mean that people finish their e-learning knowing what to do about it and being committed to doing anything about it. And so it's still important to figure out how do we go about then applying that back to our organization? Where does it show up here? What are some of the things we need to do about this? So there needs to be some kind of interactive way. So I think what we do need is a blend of some in-person sessions and then also some other material that's available in a more flexible way and in a virtual fashion. Mm, so we need to be continuing our work on process and systems that we have in place and looking at what we need to adjust as our priorities change and evolve. And you also highlighted the importance of training, of upskilling our middle managers, especially around bias, and really ensuring that training, both in-person and virtual, is effective. As we close, I'm interested to hear more about your future plans and how can we access that tool, that online training video? 
Yeah, so with the uh, recorded video work that we're making and also the, you know, the versions that we can do even live through technology, then we can do uh, a demonstration for organizations that are interested and certainly, Tina, you know, we can show you and others at Community Business. Um, we're going to be putting some little samples on our own YouTube channel. So uh, I guess we'll let people know to watch this space for that's coming up. And we already have some organizations commissioning us to create some material, but we also have quite a few samples that we made to get them interested. So yes, basically a matter of people getting in touch and we'll be able to show them. Also with community business, I think we're looking for an opportunity for me to share this with some of the, the Diane members. So for the assessment tool that we're creating, then that's in process right now. And we're looking for some friendly clients to test it out. Uh, of course, we need to go through a, a validation process. And also we need to make sure that it's really tuning in to the needs of our clients. And so, yes, it's important for us to be able to partner with clients and potential clients as part of that creation process. It's always good to know what tools and resources are available. So thank you for sharing and for your time today, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Tina. It's been great talking with you. And um, of course, the two of us are passionate. We could talk about this topic forever. Indeed. Thank you, Suzanne. And thank you all for joining. Actually, the interesting conversations between passionate individuals don't have to stop here. Make sure you all join me next time as I speak with Gulnar Vaswani on how to initiate behavior change and how to make it last.